please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 with me. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking at Zechariah's prophecy this morning. And actually, we're going to be looking at it, Lord willing, this morning and, and next week as well. I was originally planning on getting through the story of birth, uh, the birth of John the Baptist and Zechariah's uh, prophecy all in one Sunday. Uh, that didn't happen, obviously, last week. And, and this week, as I was preparing on, on Tuesday, I thought, wow, I, there's a lot here. And I said, I think I can condense it. I think I can condense it. And then as I, I continued to study on Friday night, I said, I, I can't condense this. And so I sent Mike an email and uh, told him, uh, hey, buddy, hope worship is going well. Uh, I'm going to go another week on this. And so that schedule I gave you is even uh, more irrelevant now. And so that, that's okay, though. As, as someone said to me yesterday, why hurry? Uh, we're, we're getting through God's Word, and we're going through it uh, a passage at a time, verse at a time, and, and as, as God gives us the grace, we're going to, to understand his word uh, together this morning. So uh, we're going to read the whole passage, though, this, this, this prophecy that Zechariah gives following the birth of John the Baptist and his obedience in naming John, John. And if you would stand with me as we read Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. Verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your your mercy on us this morning that allows us to to be here, to know you. We thank you that through faith in your son Jesus, we are brought into relationship with with you and therefore with one another and that we become this, this family. I pray for the, the needs this morning that are present in this church body and in this family. I pray for, for children who are ill. I pray for moms and dads who are, are struggling with parenting. We pray for husbands and wives who are struggling in their marriage relationship. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are struggling in their jobs. Lord, we would just ask your, your mercy upon us as we begin, begin this new year, that 
we would have the ability to, to be obedient to you, that you would give us uh, wisdom in, in how we should live and, and, and just the, the peace of, of comfort in our relationship with you. And we pray that this year would be a year that in the situations in which we find ourselves, that we would be able to glorify you in whatever circumstances we are in. We pray that our, our focus, our desire would be the worship of you as we worship you in whatever situation we find ourselves in, that you would receive the honor and the glory that is, that is due your name. Help us this morning now as we, we look at this passage of Scripture. I pray that as we look at some, some deep truths from your word, you would help us to be alert. I pray that you'd help my mind to, to be alert and, and for me to communicate your truth clearly and that our hearts would be receptive and repentive. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. Well, we're looking at Luke chapter 1, but before we begin looking at Luke chapter 1 in in greater detail, let me read a passage from Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, the the writer of Hebrews is talking about the the faith of the the saints of old, the the people of old, as he describes them in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 11. And all through Hebrews chapter 11, you have people who are exercising their faith in God by their obedience. Their faith is demonstrated by their obedience. And when you come to verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews describes this tension that exists for the people of God, those who have faith in God, who live according to their faith in God. He describes this tension they have as they live in this present world while contemplating a future world. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 13 and following. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." You see there that the tension that exists for the people of God. On the one hand, they are living in a a present world. They are citizens of of a country. They are physically in a land. And yet, by faith, they are anticipating a kingdom that God has prepared for them, a, a city that God has prepared for them. And so they have this almost dual citizenship status, living in one world, anticipating the next, citizens of a, another country. In the summer of 1996, I was in Croatia. And while I was in Croatia, I was staying in a city called Sisak. It was a little city about 50 miles south of Zagreb, the capital city of Croatia. And in in Sisak, I was teaching English classes. While living in Croatia, I lived under Croatian laws. When I came to Sisak, I registered with the chief of police as the city requirements stated you needed to do. I, I turned in my passport as they required people to do, which made me a little bit nervous, but you did it, right? I lived in Croatia according to Croatian or Hrvatska law. Even though I was living in Croatia under their laws, I was still very much an American citizen, sometimes embarrassingly so. I wore American clothes, I I spoke with an American accent, 
the summer of 1996, perhaps you remember that was the year that the Olympics were in Atlanta. And so as I, I watched the Olympic Games, I cheered for American athletes and American teams. Whenever the, the bomb went off in Atlanta, I, I felt that in the way that an American citizen would. It, it affected me, I would suggest, differently than the people that were around me in Croatia. I was there on July 4th, and July 4th I celebrated America's Independence Day with other Americans. One night when I was laying in my bed in, in Croatia there and I had the window open and the, the cool night air was coming in, and off in the distance I could hear this, this band playing. And it played uh, unfamiliar song after unfamiliar song. And then at one moment I, I heard this, this song play. I said, they're playing Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> and hearing the song Sweet Home Alabama affected me, I'm sure, differently than it did other people living there in Croatia. I lived in Croatia under Croatian law, but still very much an American. That's the same tension that I believe exists for those of us who are believers. Now, what I mean by believer is this. If you're a believer, you're a person that at some point in your life, you've recognized that you are a sinner, that you are part of the, the kingdom of darkness, and at some point in your life, even though perhaps maybe you can't remember the, the exact moment, you recognize that you were a sinner, that you had done things against a holy God that deserved his wrath, and yet you recognize that God had sent his son, Jesus Christ, who had lived a perfect life and had died on the cross as a sacrifice in your place, had risen from the dead three days later, and now sits the right hand of God. At some point in your life, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You turned from your sins and placed your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And the moment that you turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were transferred from that kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. And at that moment, attention began to exist in your life. How do I live as a citizen of, of God's kingdom and yet simultaneously live as a citizen in this country that I find myself in right now? I'd like us to look here at Luke chapter 1. And as we look at Luke chapter 1 together, I think we're going to see some things about this kingdom that God calls us to be a part of. We're going to look at Zechariah give this, this prophecy, and he, as he gives this prophecy concerning this, this kingdom that God is establishing, Zechariah is going to talk about different covenants that God has made with his people. As Zechariah talks about these, these covenants, we're going to, to learn more about this kingdom of God. First of all, Zechariah is going to talk about the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And as he talks about the Davidic covenant, we'll see this about the kingdom of God. We'll see that God's kingdom is a political kingdom. The Davidic covenant tells us that God's kingdom is a political kingdom. Next, we're going to look at, Zechariah is going to talk about how, he's going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant. And as we look at the Abrahamic covenant, we're going to see that God's kingdom is also a spiritual kingdom. Then finally, we're going to look at the new covenant. And as we look at the new covenant, we're going to see that God's kingdom is also a proclaimed kingdom. 
We're going to see the Davidic covenant, that God's kingdom is a political kingdom. We're going to see the Abrahamic covenant, that God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And then we're going to look at the new covenant and see that God's kingdom is also a kingdom that is proclaimed. And as we look at these different aspects of God's kingdom, what I hope that we understand as we, as we consider the tension that exists for those of us who are part of God's kingdom and simultaneously part of, part of uh, this earthly kingdom, uh, hopefully what we'll see is that we are to live in this present kingdom in which we find ourselves. I've got a backup Bible here, just in case. I wish I had a backup voice. Uh, what we're going to see, hopefully, is this. As we look at these different covenants, and we see Zechariah des- describe these, 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 these uh, different covenants that God has made with his people, hopefully we'll understand this about God's kingdom. We live in this kingdom as ambassadors of God's kingdom. We live in whatever kingdom we find ourselves in as, as ambassadors of God's kingdom. And I, I don't know if this is true for you, but it's certainly true for me, but I often, in our North American, United States culture, find myself in a little bit of a conflict as I, I think about being a citizen of the United States and also a, a citizen of God's kingdom. We live in a culture that believes that there should be a strong separation between a church and state, and it's especially strong against evangelicals participating in the political process. Sometimes it, 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 it seems especially. And so the struggle I sometimes have as a Christian is, okay, uh, I'm part of God's kingdom. I know how God desires people to act and to live. And so what do I need to do as I live in this kingdom? I'm part of God's kingdom, a subject of God's kingdom. I know how God wants people to live. What should I do as I I live here in the United States as this, this representative form of government? I mean, what should I do? Should I try to like storm the city hall and, you know, put up the Ten Commandments and or Better yet, try to pass laws where every person has to have one of the Ten Commandments tattooed on their forehead. I mean, what do I do? Or should I follow the the suggestions of some and and draw a real clean line between church and state and say, look, I'm part of God's kingdom, so I'm going to remove myself from the political realm. How do I, as a citizen of God's kingdom, handle that, that tension that exists as I also find myself in another kingdom? And my suggestion to you as we look at Luke chapter 1 is that we're going to see this, that we are to operate as ambassadors of God's kingdom as we exist in whatever kingdom we find ourselves in as believers. So let's look at Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at these three covenants that Zechariah refers to that are from the Old Testament. And before we look at the first covenant, the Davidic covenant that Zechariah references, let me, let me just spend a few minutes talking about this notion of covenant. Sometimes it can get kind of confusing as we, as we talk about covenants because uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of theologians throw around that, that term covenant and it can be kind of a, a little bit of a confusing term, but all of us understand the, the basics of what a covenant is, right? A covenant simply means a, an agreement or a promise. And in our day-to-day lives, we, we understand that there is a need for covenant. There's a need to be to be clear on the types of agreements that we're making with other people. There needs to be both clarity in terms of what we're agreeing to, and often there needs to be an understanding of the consequences if we fail to do what we're saying we're agreeing to do. So, for example, we learned this from a very young age. Two kids are talking about their new Christmas presents, a brother and a sister. The sister says, well, I'll let you ride my new bike if you let me ride your new scooter. 
brother says, okay. So he lets him ride the, the new bike, and then all of a sudden the, 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 the conditions of the agreement change. Well, I decided not to let you ride my scooter. Well, you told me, you promised me. So kids from a very early age begin to understand that sometimes there's a need to make sure we clarify the agreement and understand the consequences if we don't do what we say we're going to do. I'm going to let you do this. Promise? Yes. Swear? Yes. Swear in a Bible? Yes. Cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye? Yes, I promise. Although I've never actually seen someone stick a needle in another child's eye, the idea there is that we're clarifying what we're agreeing to and we're understanding what the consequences are if we don't do what we say we're going to do. Yesterday I was at the, the farmhouse, the, the office, working on a couple things, and some, some of you guys were there playing Risk. Okay? Now, the board game Risk involves you taking your little pieces and trying to, to conquer the world. And what happens in Risk oftentimes is, is players will reach alliances with one another. Say, look, I, I won't attack you if, if you won't attack me. They make an agreement. But what happens is they play Risk. Well, what seemed like a really good agreement one turn ago, all of a sudden seems like a, a really bad arrangement now. And so people try to renege on the agreement. Look, I, I know I told you I wasn't going to attack you, but I only meant for that one term. No, no, we said we wouldn't attack each other until the end of the game. No, I didn't. No, that's not what I really meant. What's happening there? The agreement isn't, the, there wasn't clarity in the agreement. And so now the agreement's starting to, to fall apart. What, an, what a covenant is, is a covenant is an agreement between, usually between two or more parties in which the, the terms of the relationship are defined clearly and the consequences for a party failing to go along with that agreement are described as well. And there are several different types of agreements that can be made. One type of covenant agreement that can be made is what's called a, a unilateral agreement. That means that Obligations are placed upon one party, but not the other. There can also be a, a bilateral covenant or a bilateral agreement. And in that type of covenant, both parties have conditions that they have to meet and consequences that will occur if they fail to do what they've said they're going to do. In Scripture, God makes both unilateral and bilateral covenants with people. Sometimes God makes agreements with, with people enters into a relationship with people, says, look, these are the conditions upon which we're going to have this relationship, and if you don't do what you're supposed to do, this is what's going to happen. The covenant will be breached, and these will be the consequences. Sometimes in Scripture, though, God enters into unilateral covenants with people. And he says, look, the obligation is upon me. I, as God, am telling you, this is how I'm going to deal with you. And there are several times we see God do that in Scripture. Let me give you just a couple examples of, of covenants that God makes in Scripture. One example is the, the covenant God makes with Noah. Remember, the, the rainbow is a sign of that covenant. Every time we see a rainbow, we're reminded of that covenant that God made with Noah. God made a, a covenant with, with Moses. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. God made a, a covenant with, with the priests. It's called the, the priestly covenant. There are also three covenants that Scripture talks about that are very closely related to one another. And they're the three covenants that we're talking about this morning. There's the Davidic covenant, 
or let's do it in chronologically. There's the, the covenant God makes with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. There's the covenant that God makes with David, the Davidic covenant. And there's this covenant that's described in Jeremiah that's called the, the new covenant. And each of these covenants that we're talking about this morning and next week are unilateral covenants. That is, God himself, based upon his own character, says, this is the way that I'm going to deal with you. This is how I'm going to dispense my grace to you in our relationship. Based upon me being God. These are sometimes called the the covenants of salvation or salvific covenants. We're getting to kind of some deep stuff here, but hopefully it's helpful. Let me talk about some other terms that you hear frequently. These are terms that people ask me about frequently, and if you've never thought about these terms or never wanted to ask me about them, uh, this is a bonus. Uh, you do not have to pay any extra as you leave this morning for this. Uh, one term that you hear, you've, you probably have heard before is a, a phrase called covenant theology. And uh, this is a lot of evangelicals, a lot of Christians are covenant theologians. And this is what they believe about the covenants. They believe that God has made three major covenants. One covenant was the, what they call the covenant of works. And this is the covenant that he made with Adam. And what were the conditions of this covenant? Uh, Adam, you get to enjoy the, the Garden of Eden here. Uh, you know, stay away from this fruit, this one tree. Okay? It was based upon Adam being obedient. And, of course, Adam wasn't obedient and reached that covenant. A covenant theologians would see a second covenant that God made, a covenant of redemption. They would say this is a covenant God made with himself within the Trinity. His covenant, each member of the Trinity agreeing to to save humanity, to bring about the salvation of man. And then they would see a a third covenant, the, the covenant of grace. And this third covenant, this covenant of grace, is God's covenant that he makes with humanity that brings them into relationship with himself as they've placed their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, a covenant theologian would see, as they look at the covenants that God makes uh, after the fall of man, as, as being all part of one continuous stream. And so the question that many Christians have as they come to the covenants, as described in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, uh, the question that many Christians have is, okay, I'm part of the church. These were covenants that God made with, with Israel. What sort of benefit do I gain from these covenants? How do these covenants apply to me? And covenant theologians would say, well, look, it's all, we are the new Israel, and so there, there's a very direct application to those who are part of the church. That's covenant theology. Another brand of theology, and you've probably heard this, this term as well, is, is what's called dispensationalism. Dispensational theologians believe this. They believe that, that God's covenants were made with the, the people of Israel, that word dispensation means to, it comes from the word dispense. God, and God, what they believe is that God uh, works with people in, in different ways throughout human history. And there is a, a strong, uh, whereas covenant theologians see this, this one stream of, of God's revelation, uh, dispensationalists would see great discontinuity between God's, God's covenant that he makes, covenants that he makes with people. And so a dispensationalist would say, no, there's a, there's a great uh, there's a great divide between God's covenants with Israel and God's relationship now with the church. So the question is, uh, who's right? And I am going to tell you for sure. After I get a drink of water, suspense, it's killing you, right? Excuse me. 
I've, I've traditionally been in churches that were dispensational. And so I would consider myself what's called a, at least a progressive dispensationalist. And that's kind of a nice way of trying to have it both ways. Uh, here's what I believe. I believe that certainly God made these covenants with Israel. And God is going to fulfill the covenants that he made with Israel. And yet, by the same token, it seems very clear in the New Testament language that those of us who are part of the church are experiencing the blessing of participating in the covenants that God made with Israel. And so, in some sense, it seems that God has begun to inaugurate his kingdom here and now, and we who are part of the church are participating in the blessings of that, of that kingdom. Those of us who have become part of the church are experiencing the blessings of the covenant that God made with Israel. So that's kind of a covenant and the idea of covenants in a nutshell, these agreements that God makes with people. And those of us who are part of the church are experiencing the blessings of God's covenant with Israel now as we participate in our relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look now at these different covenants. And again, as we look at these three covenants, we're going to understand this kingdom that you and I are to be ambassadors of. Remember that the central question that I'm asking you to kind of wrestle with is, okay, how do I, as a, as a child of, of God's kingdom, a citizen of, of God's kingdom, how do I, as a citizen of, citizen of God's kingdom, exist in this present kingdom? And the answer is, I see myself as an ambassador of God's kingdom in whatever cultural context I find myself in. And let's look at these different covenants that God has made with his people to help us understand the kingdom of which we are ambassadors. Does that make sense? We're looking at these covenants to help us understand the type of kingdom that God is going to establish, has already begun to establish, to see the, the type of ambassadors that we're to be right here and now. Look at your Bibles, please. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Remember the context here. Uh, John has just been born. Zechariah, it uh, says here, has, has been obedient to God. He's named him John. He immediately has been able to speak, and he begins by blessing God. And he even uses a term here, Luke uses the term, he begins to, to prophesy. And this is the, the content of, of what he is prophesying. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. In these verses, through verse 71, he's alluding to a covenant that God made with David. Let me give you just three things here about this, this covenant that God, or three things about what Zechariah is saying here. Uh, first of all, Zechariah is blessing God for offering real political deliverance. Look at verse 68 again. It says he's visited his people and redeemed them. It says in the first part of verse 69, he's raised up a, a horn of salvation for us. That, that term horn of salvation was like the, it was, it was a, an imagery that was used in the Old Testament to describe like the, the, the horn of a beast, and it, it uh, connotated might and power and, and conquering ability. The idea here is that there's this, this person who's going to be raised up who's able to offer might and, and deliverance. Verse 69 tells us that this is in keeping with the promise that God made to David. It says in the, the house of his servant David, there was an expectation based upon this 
covenant that God made with David, which we'll talk about in just a moment, there was an expectation that the Messiah was going to come from the house of David and be this, this horn of salvation that would deliver his people. The third thing we see here is not only, or, or yeah, the first thing we see is that Zechariah is blessing God for offering this deliverance. Secondly, thing we see is that deliverance is part of the covenant plan that he made with David. The third thing is that the anticipated result of this Davidic king is political deliverance. It says in verse 71 that we should be saved from our, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Don't over-spiritualize what Zechariah is saying here. Zechariah has an expectation that this Davidic king is going to offer real, tangible, physical, political deliverance from the people who hate Israel. And don't say, well, well, Zechariah, you know, he was shaped by his culture. He didn't really understand the true uh, meaning of the Messiah. He didn't understand the, the spiritual side of things. What does verse 67 tell us about him? It tells us he's prophesying by the Holy Spirit. And so Zechariah anticipates a real political kingdom that the Messiah is going to establish. God's kingdom according to the Davidic covenant, is a real political kingdom. Let's talk a little bit about the Davidic covenant and talk about this covenant that God makes with David. We're going to have to turn around our Bibles a little bit this morning. Uh, Turn back to 1 Samuel. Actually, I think it's 2 Samuel 7. Second Samuel 7, David is in his house, and he's thinking about this, this great house that he has. He thinks about the, the Ark of the Covenant, how it's out in a tent. And in verse 1 of Second Samuel 7, it says that the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him. And he says to, the king says to Nathan in verse 2, look, I'm in this house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. The idea is I want to do something special for God and allow his, his ark to, to dwell in a temple. And Nathan says to the king, do this all in your heart. The Lord is with you. But then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and says, look, tell him not to be the one who builds a, a house. He says in verse 6, I've not lived in a house since the day I, I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, and in all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Therefore say this to to my servant David, he says in verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've went. I've cut off your enemies, verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And listen to this. Listen, this is all part of the covenant that God makes with David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And listen to the, the real physical political terms in which he's describing this kingdom and what's going to happen. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Remember, that's exactly what Zechariah says in Luke chapter 1. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. What is he going to do? He's going to be the one that builds a house for my name, verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity or sin, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But, and here's why this is an unconditional covenant, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. Listen to this, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So as we're thinking about the Davidic covenant, the first thing that we need to understand is the Davidic covenant is a unilateral agreement that God makes with King David. And what he says is, look, David, your throne is going to be established forever. We'll talk about this next week, but another thing to understand about the Davidic covenant is it does seem to to further describe some things that God promised to Abraham. Again, we'll talk about that next week. Now, a third thing to consider about the Davidic covenant, not only is it a continuation of God's covenant with Abraham, not only is it made to David, but uh, it's a really cool covenant. (laughs) And because it's so grand and so wonderful, the third thing to realize is the people of Israel often meditated upon and thought about what would happen as a result of this messianic king, this, this ruler that would come from the line of David. Imagine you're at work, and you're at work, and your boss comes in and, and says, uh, look, look, you've done an amazing job this year. Your performance has just been stellar, and I'm going to give you a raise, and, and tells you about the, the amount of the raise that you're going to get, and it's a substantial number. Your boss leaves your office, and, and what do you do? You kind of think about it a little bit. You, you're, you're daydreaming, and you, you maybe even take out a little pad of paper. And, and uh, how much would that be per month? How much is that per day? Now, that vacation we wanted, we couldn't do that this year. I wonder if we could, you begin thinking about the consequences of that raise. Or maybe you're a, a girl in, in junior high and in high school, and you have a, a crush on this really uh, cute guy. And uh, you hear through the grapevine that this guy has a crush on you, too. How does that affect your thinking? That's kind of some good news to you. You begin to to think about that a little bit and daydream. You look at your your notes, and all of a sudden that guy's initials are all through your notes on your class paper. And and you're thinking about children that you may have someday and how many children you'll have and and what a wonderful life you'll live. You, You begin thinking about it and meditating upon it. As you think about a really cool thing that's happened in your life, an exciting event it affects your thought patterns, and, and, and you think about it, you dwell upon it. The people of Israel, as they thought about this Davidic king, this king that God promised David that was going to offer real political deliverance, they got pretty pumped about it. In fact, we're turning in our Bibles, turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, uh, Ethan the Ezraite is a contemporary of, of Solomon and then of, of Rehoboam and Jeoboam later. And... Uh, Ethan contemplates this promise that God had made to David. And there's this dark time in Israel's history 
where the northern tribes, instead of crowning the son of Solomon, Rehoboam king, they crowned Jeroboam king as well. And Ethan looks at what's going on and he, he can't quite understand it, but he remembers the promise God had made to David. And, and listen to what he writes in Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 1, he says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And so uh, Ethan remembers that promise of God, that Davidic covenant, that agreement he made with David, and he meditates on it in Psalm 89 as he considers the condition that they're in right now. For example, verse 28, he says, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne is the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with their rod and their iniquity with stripes, but... I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the words that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. And so Ethan, as he thinks about the situation that he's facing right now, he says, look, God is chastising, God is, God is rebuking, and yet I have confidence that this promise that he made to David will stand firm. God will establish a real political kingdom. We will have relief from our enemies because he said he would do it. Now, the expectation that existed with this Davidic covenant was that there would be a king that would rule with righteousness. Let me just read you a couple psalms. Psalm 10, verse 16 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land, O Lord. You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Again, we're thinking about the Davidic covenant. It was a covenant that built upon the promises made to Abraham. It was a covenant made to David. It was a covenant that caused the people to, to get excited and dwell upon the goodness of, of the Lord. It was also a covenant in which they anticipated the righteous rule of a king. It goes on in another psalm. Psalm 72 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon, upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. There is this expectation upon the part of the people of Israel, upon God's prophets, that there is coming a king who is going to rule the way the kings are supposed to rule. And unfortunately, in the history of Israel, what we see over and over and over again is that God offers 
the kings the chance to walk according to his laws and according to his commandments. And what do the kings choose to do? That They choose to refuse to obey God. And they walk in disobedience. Understanding the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David, is very important as you read the books of Kings and Chronicles. And over and over again, as you read Kings and Chronicles, you see an attention focused upon the king. And as it deals with his life, it comes to the end of his life, and it says something like, and he did not walk according to the laws and commandments of God as did his father David. What are they saying? This isn't the guy. This isn't the king that we were waiting for. We can't wait for the king that God has promised us. This wasn't it. This guy missed the mark. While we come to the end of 2 Chronicles, it says the, 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 the writer of Chronicles has given us the theological purpose of his book. He says, look, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place But they, the kings especially, kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. What happened? This king who was supposed to rule in righteousness never showed up. Until now. And so Zechariah, as he's meditating upon the covenant that God made with David, what does he say? He says, He's raised up this horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we <laughs> should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Don't over-spiritualize the kingdom of God. There is a continued expectation of deliverance so that a good king could rule. And here, Zechariah is saying that has happened. God has allowed the horn of salvation that he promised from old to come to us in this Messiah, this, this person who's being born, and he's going to say, as we'll look at next week, and John, you're his forerunner. My son gets to be the one who who heralds the coming of the king. Zechariah's expectation is that there's a good king who's going to rule righteously, and, and this excites him. As members of God's kingdom, as ambassadors of God's kingdom, it's important that we understand that we're ambassadors of a real kingdom. God is very concerned that people live in a righteous way. God is concerned that people treat one another justly. He's concerned that laws are just, that people are righteous, that the innocent, the the young, the poor are provided for and, and cared for. He doesn't want societies and cultures and and kingdoms to be established that that oppress the poor, that oppress the the innocent, that pervert justice. Slavery has existed uh, since almost the the beginning of of, uh, humanity. In the 16th century, uh, slavery took a, a particularly 
heinous form, perhaps one of the, the worst forms that, of slavery that the world has ever experienced in the form of the, the African slave trade. And in England in the 18th century, excuse me, the, the 19th uh, century, there was a man named William Wilberforce who was a, a solid evangelical who fought in the House of Parliament to remove slavery from England. And listen to what William, William uh, Wilberforce said as he talks about his involvement in trying to end the slave trade. He says, Is it not the great end of religion, and in particular the glory of Christianity, to extinguish the malignant passions, to curb the violence, to control the appetites, and to, to smooth the unevenness of man, to make us compassionate and kind and forgiving to one another, to make us good husbands, good fathers, good friends, and to render us active and useful in the discharge of the relative social and civil duties that we have toward one another. That idea, duty, is a word that we'll return to next week. It's a word that's escaped the consciousness of our current political climate in many ways. I read an article on William Wilberforce this week, written from a non-evangelical perspective. And the article said this, it said, why can't evangelicals be like William Wilberforce today? Why can't they, why can't they just leave women alone and give them the right to choose? Why do they have to, to, to do, and they talked about several, why can't they let other people just do what they want to do, and why do they have to be so hung up on, on righteousness and morality? And I tell you this, William Wilberforce is a perfect example of what it looks like for a believer a citizen of the kingdom of God, to be an ambassador of God's kingdom in the here and now. You would not have a William Wilberforce apart from his deep passion for the righteousness of God. And there were many of his contemporaries who, by appealing to, to reason and so-called science and, and things like that, made strong economic and political arguments for maintaining the detestable practice of slavery. And it was William Wilberforce's passion for God and his gospel and to see righteousness worked out in the lives of his culture, lives of the people in his culture that compelled him to interact, compelled him to maintain his constant drumbeating for the righteousness of God in that specific issue of slavery. Do not overly spiritualize the kingdom of God. Do not remove yourself from the political world and say, look, this kingdom can kind of, you know, it can, to use the expression, it, it, can, it, can, uh, it can go to pot. I don't care what happens to this culture because I'm not a part of it. And so let, let them make their laws, let them do their thing. I'm over here in God's heavenly kingdom. God is concerned with righteousness in our current kingdom as well. And we'll talk about this next week. We need not fool ourselves and think that this is the kingdom of God. And yet, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, we have the responsibility right now to be speaking and proclaiming the truth of God in this kingdom. We're not going to go on beyond that this morning, but let me just close with, with this idea. Many want God out of politics. They want a, a separation of, of church and state, and 
We'll talk more about that next week. There's one small problem for those of us who are believers with the idea of the separation of, of strong idea of uh, a strong wall between church and state. The, the minor problem with that philosophy is that God doesn't really subscribe to it. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there's these portions of these, of these prophecies where over and over again the, the kingdoms are called to account. So look, this is the type of unrighteousness you practice. Here comes judgment, unrighteousness, judgment, unrighteousness, judgment. God doesn't say, well, church and state, <laughs> I guess I won't hold you to my, to my law because you're a political entity. God says, you will come under my judgment because of the unrighteousness that you committed. We're ambassadors of God's kingdom. And the message we proclaim is this. God's kingdom is coming, and as God's ambassador of that kingdom, I'm calling upon you to submit to the great king, the Davidic king, King Jesus. And that's my offer to each person here this morning. God's kingdom is coming. God's kingdom has, has begun, it was inaugurated, it was, I believe has begun with the arrival of, of Jesus Christ. It's coming. We're going to experience it in its fullness someday, perhaps someday very soon. And my call as an ambassador of God's kingdom is to submit to the reign of the king who will rule with perfect, holy righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you that we can be a part of your kingdom through faith in your son, Jesus. And We would ask that you would break our hearts of our rebellious tendencies and cause us to submit to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, our great king. Amen.